This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, Le Show, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, Truth Dig Radio, and Activism from Best of the Left. We begin in Oklahoma tonight with an execution that didn't go as planned. A convicted killer from Oklahoma dies after a botched execution. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait, you're not, you're not going to really do a comic take on the death penalty, right? It's your second episode. I haven't even decided if I like this show yet. Well, you're right. Don't change the channel. We don't have to talk about the death penalty. No one is forcing us to. In the application of the death penalty in this country, we have seen uh, significant problems. Uh, I think we do have to, uh, as a society, ask ourselves some, some uh, difficult and profound questions. Do we? Do we really have to do that? Can you not just answer those questions for us? Because I do not want to talk about the death penalty. And judging by the noise that you make when you talk about it, neither do you. What happened in Oklahoma is deeply troubling. I know that sound. That's the sound of a man drowning on dry land. Desperately hoping for Biden to suddenly walk out into the rose garden in an open road. Oh God, Joe. Oh, Joe's here. Thank God you're here. Uh, let's lighten the mood, everyone. Let's talk about Benghazi. Okay, okay. So let's do this then. The death penalty. Should it exist? And what should its limits be? Uh, can someone give me a broad, almost infantile guideline of when they think it's appropriate? The Supreme Court has already told us that the death penalty is constitutional. I be do believe in the death penalty, but, but only with respect to those that are guilty of committing the crime. Okay. Okay. Bold idea. We shouldn't execute innocent people. Most people would probably agree with that. You, sir, are a regular Atticus Finch. But, but ex executing the innocent is not really the tough question here. It's whether we should be executing the guilty. And let me acknowledge right up front that I come to this as a bit of an outsider. Britain does not have capital punishment. So in a way, I really don't know what I'm talking about. But... In another way, I really do know what I'm talking about, because before 1965, we didn't just have capital punishment, we literally went medieval on people's asses. The history of capital punishment in Britain is a long and bloody one. Since the Middle Ages, those condemned to death have variously faced being boiled alive, burnt at the stake, or hung, drawn and quartered. Yeah, we did that. We boiled people. And in the grand tradition of British cuisine, if anything, we overboiled them. We boiled them up. We, we loved killing people so much, we kept coming up with new inventive techniques that looked like they were designed by the Marquis de Sade and named by Willy Wonka. This is the head crusher. The small and seemingly innocuous thumb biter originates in 14th century Scotland. These devices have almost childlike names, like Pennywinkies. Ooh, that's right, P 
Pennywinkies, a delightful English cousin of the throaty tug tug and the jolly shocky buzz buzz tickly wickly seat. And look, I know, I know that all of this is still technically horrifying, but that's kind of the point. Because whether you are boiling people alive or putting them to sleep with a tiny injection administered by a puppy dressed as Winnie the Pooh, in the end, you are getting the same result. And here's the thing. Just because the British people don't have the death penalty anymore doesn't mean that we don't want it back. Recent polls suggest that at least half the population would choose to have it reinstated, which makes complete sense, because the death penalty is one of those things that is natural to want, but that you shouldn't necessarily have. The death penalty is like the McRib. When, when you can't have it, it's so tantalising. But as soon as they bring it back, you think, this is ethically wrong. Should this be allowed in a civilised society? And by the way, there is your new slogan, McRib. You are welcome. You are welcome. You can have that for free. That's yours. Because... Because there are things about having the death penalty which might make you a little bit queasy. What does the United States have in common with Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia? The answer is the death penalty. According to Amnesty International, those four nations and China are responsible for 82% of the world's executions. Look, this is going to seem like a gross simplification, but any list that contains Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and China is not a list you want to be on. <laughs> Ideally, you want to be on one of those lists that Finland is on. <laughs> Finland, Finland is on all the good lists, like uh, countries with the best pastries, or best countries to host your overseas lesbian wedding. <laughs> and I, I, know, I know what some of you are thinking, but John, I hear you saying that most Western countries no longer have executions, but if someone committed a heinous crime, I would still very much like to kill them. Okay, well, let's start with if. There have been 312 DNA exonerations right. in this country since we've been doing forensic testing. It is interesting for all. how things which were once considered complete uh, airtight evidence against somebody are now sort of being viewed as junk science. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> is interesting really the word that you're looking for there, Cooper? Facts found on Snapple caps are interesting. <laughs> oh. The Statue of Liberty's nose is four feet six inches long. Ha, huh, that's an interesting fact. But, but facts like innocent people are potentially executed by our government on a regular basis are not so much interesting as fucking horrifying. Put it this way, if you found that on the bottom of a Chobani lid, that would make a container of Chobani even harder to swallow than it already is. And look, look, Statistics suggest that false convictions aren't all that rare. I Just agree. this week, we are learning from the proceedings uh, of the National Academy of Sciences, a study that shows 4% of death row inmates are innocent. I think you might be using the wrong tone. 4%? Well, the, the outrage about this must be off the charts. I remember a certain Texas governor who felt that four individual cases of voter impersonation in the last decade was a moral issue important to address. 
I think uh, any uh, person who uh, does not want to see uh, fraud uh, believes in having good, open, honest elections, transparent. Well, we take it to the Supreme Court. To the Supreme Court of a voter impersonation rate essentially close to zero percent. So a potential executing the innocent rate of four percent must really eat away at Rick Perry. Your state has executed 234 death row inmates more than any other governor in modern times. Have you, have you struggled to sleep at night um, uh, with the idea that any one of those might have been uh, innocent? No, sir, I've never struggled with that at all. Nope. I, I never struggled with it. In fact, I sleep great, like a big muscular baby. 14 hours a night, legs in the air with a mobile above my head. <laughs> Crying when I shit myself, I'm a big baby. I sleep like a baby. <laughs> but, but, okay, okay. Let's imagine for a moment a magical world where you could be sure of someone's guilt. What are the arguments for killing them then? Is it that it's a deterrent to others? There is no credible evidence that the death penalty is a particular deterrent to violent crime. Although, to be fair, the death penalty is an amazing deterrent to fishing without a license. <laughs> Listen, Todd, I'd love to go with you, but is it worth it? You've got a wife and children. <laughs> so, what about the argument then that we shouldn't have to pay to house and feed a convicted killer? An average death penalty case costs the state millions of dollars. In California alone, since 1978, the total cost of enforcing the death penalty has been over $4 billion. That's $308 million for each of the 13 executions carried out. In fact, it costs up to 10 times more to give someone the death penalty than life in prison. So what a death sentence is really saying is, hey, this is America. And the way we treat the most despicable members of our society is by spending the entire budget of the Lord of the Rings trilogy on them. As you all know, a few weeks ago, uh, Oklahoma had a uh, event that certainly deserved even more coverage. I don't think the coverage it received was enough, actually. Uh, a botched execution happened in uh, Oklahoma of uh, Clayton Lockett. They uh, administered the uh, the lethal injection, and there was all sorts of. Uh, uh, issues arising where they weren't letting it be known what they were using, and they had to use, I believe, some some other concoction because the the drug manufacturer was not letting them use their uh, their drugs to administer the lethal injection. And the Oklahoma governor refused to stay it until uh, further uh, further information or details or the courts can decide really. And the execution went bad, and this guy suffered, and suffered for a long time before dying. And should be, really, a 
people should look down on that. It's something, it's a sad moment for this country, I think. And I don't think many people view it as that. But um, in response to this, uh, NBC News decided to poll people on lethal injections and the death penalty in general to see if the, uh, if the mood across the country changed after this heavily covered event. Um, and they found that this has not happened at all. Uh, the majority of Americans still uh, support the death penalty. Um, it's not this event has not hurt the uh, people who support the death penalty at all, and two thirds of voters would back alternatives to lethal injection if they this if. If after review happens, it's decided that lethal injections like this should no longer happen. Um, what's truly disturbing is they interviewed these people, and 20% are for gas chamber, 18% are for the electric chair, and 12% are for firing squads, and 8% are, are for hanging. Uh, they interviewed some of these people. The, the lethal injection is someone's very gross interpretation of killing someone humanely, said Cooney Beasley, who called for a return to hanging. Oh, my God. Uh, it's very quick. You don't have to worry about drugs, and it's very efficient. Better than a firing squad. A firing squad is messy. I mean, just when you think someone's going to say something that's, you know, you know, from their heart, like, you know, oh, man, this is really... He said... The lethal injection is a very gross interpretation of killing someone humanely. Wow, it's a very profound statement. I'm very happy you, you, you feel that way because it is disgusting that we are killing people in response to their crime, being that even though that is the crime that they're being committed and being punished for, but we are doing that and we're taking life. I mean, we're in the business of killing and, you know, I'm glad, you know, it's a very... But, uh, wait, uh, what? Oh, Oh, you want hanging? Oh, okay. I mean, what do you say? I mean, really? Like, it's it's lethal injections fucked up. We should actually we should hang them. That yeah. would be uh, that makes a lot more sense. It's insane to me. Uh, Gladys, I think lethal injections a little harsh. Like, what we should do is you should go outside, literally snap somebody's neck off with rope as they hang in the air and well, breathe for breath. Yeah. Before, before we move on from Beasley, makes total sense. Before we move on from uh, Beasley, the reason he's convinced that uh, hanging is the best option. Is after all, that's how they killed Saddam Hussein. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, you know, you know how they got Hitler. We should give all criminals a gun. <laughs> I mean, we should just push people off buildings. I don't, I don't know. Like make make it a real spectacle. We should all give criminals a gun. We should all hand them poison. Uh, and let them do it. Right. That's how we should kill. If we want to do it, I mean, if you want to go by how we killed some of, I guess, who you can view as the worst people ever. No, so I'm say it's pretty bad. Yeah, no, Hitler I'm saying pretty bad. the worst people ever. Yeah. I mean, I guess Hitler would top that list. I think Hitler would probably top. I think Hitler is the standard. Yeah. So why, yeah. why, why just deal with how we got how we how we executed Saddam Hussein? Why just go with hanging? When you can go with how we got the biggest baddie of them all and let execute all of our people on death row 
via suicide. Forced suicides. We should just convince people to commit mass suicide. I think that's the plan. That, wow. That's what I'm for. I haven't seen anyone on this list. I mean, I know one person here, Gladys None of them really Pringle. have the balls to step up, frankly. Yeah, Gladys Pringle wants a... Uh, Pringle. Wants, <laughs> wants, <laughs> wants, wants bullets, she said. It would be quick. And with a firing squad, no one knows whose bullet actually killed the person. <laughs> so it's easier on them. I like how she's most oh worried about God. the poor people who have to administer the executions. But if you thought Gladys Pringle, if you thought the craziest thing about Gladys Pringle was her view on firing squads or her name. I still thought it was her name. Or her name. Yeah, name. Wait for, for this, this one. She continues. The most humane way is the guillotine, but I can't see that coming back. <laughs> Sorry, I'm stepping off the mic as far as I can. Guillotine making the comeback, baby! Oh I mean, really, this is unbelievable. <laughs> and there's some really interesting stats here, actually. Um, One-fourth of people who oppose execution say the main reason is it's against their religious beliefs. Six uh, percent of people think a deterrent effect think it's a deterrent effective, and that's the strong argument for execution. Fourteen percent cite cost effectiveness. Yes, because what we really should be worried about is how much it costs. Um, that's unbelievable to me. Uh, only 18% of Republicans are against the death penalty, whereas half of Democrats are against the death penalty. And this is the most interesting stat to me. More interesting than the fact that, uh, Republicans, Protestants, and older people are more likely to favor execution than Democrats, Catholics, and young people. This is the most interesting stat to me. Nine, uh, sorry, 64% of whites favor the death penalty. 58% of blacks oppose it. Huh. I wonder why. Hmm. Hmm. It's post-racial America. There's no white privilege. Wonder why 64% of whites are favoring the death penalty, whereas almost the same amount of blacks oppose it. What the hell is wrong with our society that we still think our right and right means that it's okay to kill? It's okay to kill if the reasons are good enough. God damn it, it's not okay to kill. God damn it, it's not okay to kill. A federal judge, U.S. District Judge uh, Cormac Carney, to be specific, has uh, decided that California's death penalty is unconstitutional. And the reason why he fi finds it unconstitutional is because oftentimes uh, people will be sentenced to the death penalty and then they'll never get executed. So let me give you uh, his ruling in his words. He says California's death penalty system is so plagued by inordinate and unpredictable delay that the death sentence is actually carried out against only a trivial few of those sentenced to death. For all practical purposes then, a sentence of death in California is a sentence of life imprisonment with the remote possibility of death, a sentence no rational legislature or jury could ever impose. And he considers this cruel and unusual punishment because for the inmate who actually ends up serving time, he or she is completely unaware as to whether or not they're going to get executed. Yeah, And it creates this environment of constant stress and panic and 
and and, and in ways that he describes, cruel and unusual punishment. Right. He's like, look, most of them stay in jail for their lives anyway. Just give them a life sentence instead of this constant, like, you're going to die. No, you're not. You're about to die. No, no. Ooh, another repeal. No, it, no, no. And it happens constantly over and over again. So, uh, look, I think it's the right decision on a couple of fronts. Uh, you know, you, you've heard me, if you watch the show a long time, know that uh, I switched positions on the death penalty mainly because we were executing the wrong people. Mm -hmm. Bit of a problem, right? We've exonerated three people um, in California since 1973. Right. Okay, and across the country, dozens yes. exonerated from death row. We were about to kill them, and then we're like, oops, mm -hmm. you're the wrong guy. I mean, what, do you, what more evidence do you need? Like, the people who are still pro-death penalty, you're fine with that? Like... Well, okay, yeah, we kill a bunch of innocent people. Yeah. I mean, I, I, just, I don't understand I just, that logic. I don't understand it either. <laughs> right. But by the way, just to cite some evidence supporting the judge's ruling on this, it's incredible. 40% of California's 748 death row inmates have been there for more than 19 years. Now, I remember from being on the pro-death penalty side that I'd get annoyed a little bit at the, at the libs <laughs> who... So we drag out the process so that it takes 19 years. Do you know how much it costs per execution in the state of California because of all the legal uh, filings and everything? $308 million on each execution. That's insane. Based on that cost alone, if you're a conservative, you're anybody, you got to be like, no, 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 don't do that. That's crazy. But I remember thinking when I was on the other side, like, well, you're the guys who dragged it out, and then you complain that you got it dragged out. Right, yeah. and you're the ones who wanted to spend all the money on appeal, and then you're complaining you were spending a lot of money on appeal. Yeah. So I get that complaint. It's a little bit of an issue, though, Jenk, because I feel like if you do drag it out, though, you give more of an opportunity for organizations like the Innocence Project to go through the DNA evidence to exonerate these people. So there is an upside to it, unquestionably. And so I remember thinking that, and I think I am right about that. That it, look, it is the appeals that are dragging out. We could do it much quicker and much cheaper. But it's a good thing we dragged it out. Otherwise, those dozens of people that were exonerated by the Innocence Project would now be dead when they were innocent. Yeah. So if we'd killed them much quicker and more efficiently, almost all of them would have died. Exactly. So thank God we dragged it out. Enough, enough, man. Life sentence is a really, really harsh punishment. And we got these are, there's no reason to have sympathy for these killers. Give them a life sentence and let's move on. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that allows you to create your own professional website or online portfolio, but where they really shine is in their focus on design and a forward-looking vision for the internet. All their fancy features would mean nothing if they weren't designed well, after all. They are basically on a mission to improve the entire internet one website at a time. You know, they spend all of their time worrying about making things look good and function smoothly so that you can focus on filling in your website with great content. And if everything goes smoothly, the visitors to your website will enjoy the experience without even knowing exactly why. But that's the funny thing about design. A lot of people don't notice it until they see it done badly, and then they have a negative association with whatever bad design they just came across. So don't let this happen to your website. Give Squarespace a try with a 14-day free trial, no credit card necessary. Build yourself a website you'll be proud to show off, and your visitors will be happy to spend time at. Then, when you're ready to make the move permanent, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT at checkout 
out. That's just L-E-F-T, which gets you 10% off your purchase. And that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. It's the all-in-one platform. Makes it fast and easy to create. You can start with 20 highly customizable Yet another lethal injection application of the death penalty has gone wrong. Yesterday in Arizona, the execution of a death row inmate by means of lethal injection went so wrong that almost an hour into the procedure, the prisoner's attorneys called for the procedure to be halted. According to NBC News, attorneys for 35-year-old Joseph Wood, I'm sorry, 55-year-old Joseph Wood, said that their client was still alive one hour after the injection took place. The chemicals, of course, meant to end his life. Wood was convicted back in 1989 in the shooting deaths of his girlfriend and her father. He was gasping and snorting for more than an hour after a mixture of the drugs midazolam and hydromorphone were injected into a system. This is the exact same combination of drugs that was used in Ohio earlier this year in which a condemned prisoner took more than 25 minutes to die. Wood's execution had already been postponed numerous times because the uh, there were appeals from his legal team based on the mistrust of the state to carry out the execution in accordance to, uh, with the law, right? Not uh, uh, cruel and unusual, which, of course, some people would disagree. They would say any any application of the death penalty is cruel and unusual uh, with the drugs that were available. Ultimately, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Wood was started to be transported to a hospital and ultimately died at 3.49 p.m. local time. Lewis, this was one hour and 57 minutes after his execution began two hours what are we doing uh yeah we already talked about how the in certain cases there were there weren't even any medical experts or um or pharmaceutical experts involved in the entire process right uh it's just so absurd uh we've really stooped to a ridiculously low level. And we've talked so many times about all of the practical aspects, all of the practical ways in which the death penalty does not achieve what it is meant to achieve. Uh, uh, the death penalty is not justice, it is revenge. The death penalty does not deter crime. The death penalty is not fiscally conservative. We've talked about it time and time again, but let's throw out every single one of those arguments just for a second. The term lethal injection and the procedure of lethal injection is really a farce in the sense that hangings and firing squads and a guillotine or the electric chair, all of these other methods are much more visually uh, uh, impressive or scary or gruesome to somebody who observes. And lethal injection has become this sort of uh, uh, thinly veiled guise for we do things morally and we do things right. But as we see time and time again, it is really no different than those other methods. Yeah, if lethal injection is the best thing we can come up with, um, then 
clearly it's something that just should not be done at all. Well, one of Wood's attorneys actually said that chopping his head off would actually be uh, more reliable and humane in terms of would it be possible that he lives two hours after the uh, uh, method of death is implemented? No. Another one of the great ironies in this week's news would be the what's now being called the botched execution in the state of Arizona of a convicted murderer. The uh, execution, in case you weren't following this story, took approximately two hours, approximately two hours for the convicted killer to stop gasping and snorting and finally cease existence. Um, at first, the governor of Arizona, Jan Brewer, said at least he didn't suffer like the people, the families of the people he killed. Uh, she then revised her comments later in the week to say, uh, I'll, I'll get to her comments in a moment. The irony is that one of the chemicals in the cocktail used in Arizona's lethal injection protocol. Now, I didn't say propofol, I said in, in, the, in, in their lethal injection protocol was midazolam. In case that chemical rings a distant bell with you, it should. It was one of the chemicals administered to Michael Jackson on the night he died. So maybe Arizona should, uh, before doing anything else, just uh, call Dr. Conrad Murray to run their executions. But Jan Brewer, the governor of Oklahoma, of Arizona, did say later in the week that uh, she was going to uh, order an investigation of the uh, two-hour-long execution. She didn't say whether she was going to investigate its uh, causes or its possibilities. This world moves so fast today. One hour dry cleaning, 15 minute parking, two minute meals. Isn't there a place where you can just slow down? There sure is. It's a beautiful place. A very unique place. We love the Grand Canyon. Spent the whole day just walking around. I bought this Navajo blanket. The woman told me it took her two years to make it. She even said it slowly. Hi, I'm Jan Brewer, governor of Arizona. A place where life slows down a little. And so does death. Even our chopper trip over the canyon didn't last as long as that execution. So whether you're a tourist or just a prisoner, remember, Arizona, we take our time. And yours. See you soon in the state where the only thing slower than the food is the killing. And tell them Sheriff Joe sent you a message from the Arizona Tourism and Prison Commission. My people plus the nine is mine. Don't think I even double dust. Here's the problem. My attitude is hit up. Hang up high. I'm growing up the 90s. Started 
ticket in 86 When the blind get a mind Better stop fearing while we singing now There will be the thing We know who's down and who will go Go, 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 go By the time I get to Arizona By the time I get to Arizona By the time I get to Arizona New evidence has come out that Cameron Todd Willingham is innocent. This sounds like great news for Willingham. It's just hard to tell him about it because he was executed in 2004 by the state of Texas. Prosecutors accused Willingham of setting fire to his house, killing his three daughters. The testimony from the arson experts in the trial has since been ripped apart. And the prosecution's main witness, Johnny Webb, who spent time in jail with Willingham, now says he was told to lie by the prosecution. Webb was was promised help getting out of jail if he said Willingham confessed to him. An innocent man was executed. So why do so many Americans defend this barbaric Stone Age system of punishment? What are we, monkeys? I mean, yes, we are, but can't we try not to be for like a second? People give a few reasons for the death penalty. They say it deters murderers from murdering, and that's true in that it's not true at all. No, never. All the studies show it's not true, which makes sense, because when you're strangling someone, you're not generally contemplating the state laws, you know? Let's see, did I cross the border into Virginia while I was driving in a, shut up, fit of rage last night? No, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Secondly, people say, I don't want my tax dollars to go to keep a murderer alive. But it actually costs more to execute someone than to keep them alive in prison because of the cost of co the court process and mandatory appeals. But even if it were cheaper, you're gonna murder someone because of the seven cents taken out of your taxes? What the hell kind of haggling is that? Okay, okay, so, so it's not cool, seven cents for a murderer to, to keep him alive, not cool. Well, what about five cents and it's a rapist? You go with that? No, no, how about three cents, three cents, it's a jaywalker and you get a Tootsie Pop. How about that? that <laughs> then people say, what if it were your family member who were murdered? Then you change your mind. Well, do you mean my family member was murdered by an evil killer or my family member was murdered because they were innocent on death row? Let's just be clear. Then people always come down to the final reason. It feels right. At the end of the day, seeing some horrible, disgusting person executed feels good. Okay, but wouldn't it also feel good to see the ass clown bankers who caused the 2008 collapse locked in a cell and beaten with sacks of their own money? Yeah, yeah feel pretty good, right? It would feel good. It would, and would it feel good to see the real housewives of bliggity blue have their mouths spackled shut? Yeah, yeah, it'd feel pretty good. And would it feel good to see Cheney or Rumsfeld at the head of BP dropped in a vat of oil covered in breadcrumbs and pecked furiously by exotic endangered birds finally avenging their loss of habitat. Yeah, yeah, it feels pretty good. But we as a civilized society have decided we can't do those things even though they might feel good. So we're, if we're opposed to all of that, why are we not opposed to a racist, faulty death penalty? Yeah, I didn't even get to the racist part. Studies have shown that the number one determinant of whether a defendant gets the death penalty is race of the victim. Of the victim. This means we view murdering white people as worse than murdering black people. So you could beat Will Smith or Kerry Washington to death with a tennis shoe, and it's only a minor problem. But if you touch a hair on Screech's head, we will f*** you up. 
We already have a horrible punishment for people who murder. It's life in prison. And life in prison is terrible. But the difference is that when you find out the person didn't commit the crime, like the 4% of innocent people on death row, you still have a chance to go back and go, hey, my bad. But for those of you supporting this antiquated, flawed, and racist system, my hat is off to you. Nothing takes more balls than sticking to a point of view, no matter how fully it's been proven wrong. Never. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using, or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Okay, so we now, uh, of course, have the study from several months ago where we found out that one in 25 death row inmates is actually innocent. That's about 4% of those inmates on death row. We now have a new study that shows that a majority of 100 executed inmates in this study had a severe mental illness, such as schizophrenia, PTSD, or psychosis. And because of this oddity that exists in the Supreme Court's decisions on death penalty cases, uh, it is not atypical that these individuals are executed by the state. There's a pair of cases that were decided back in 2002 and in 2005 where the Supreme Court held that it is unconstitutional to execute intellectually disabled inmates and individuals who committed capital offenses when they were under the age of 18. And as the court explained numerous times in these cases, these cases are rooted in the fact that certain offenders have, quote, diminished capacities to understand and process information, to communicate, to abstract from mistakes and learn from experience, to engage in logical reasoning, to control impulses, and to understand the reactions of others. And thus, it would be cruel and unusual to sentence to death and to execute those with severe mental illness who are younger than 18 when they commit a crime. That part makes sense to me, doesn't it, Lewis? So far, that it's logical. I think that's fine, yeah. So the rationale is that um, uh, if, if you execute, that it's simply unfair to execute people in, in these cases. And in this study that was conducted by researchers Robert Smith, Sophie Cull, and Zoe Robinson, they found that the overwhelming majority of executed offenders had intellectual and psychological deficits that rivaled or outpaced those with intellectual disability and juvenile status. So we have to ask ourselves, why is it only wrong when the capital offense was committed prior to age 18 to execute individuals with severe mental illness? Or why do we feel good about why is it right when they were older than 18 at the time the crime was committed? Is not mental illness mental illness? I think it is. And of course, uh, the, I mean, we shouldn't have the death penalty anyway. But um, 
you know, a lot of people could ask, well, should someone with mental illness have to spend life in prison too if they're just ill? and can uh, conceivably be rehabilitated in some type of special facility. Well, you could uh, make the argument, Lewis, right? You could say, listen, uh, we shouldn't kill. I, I actually think there's a good argument to be made why that is more acceptable. And the argument is clear to me. If we kill this person, number one, the Supreme Court has held that when the, the offense is committed prior to 18, that it is actually wrong to execute uh, those individuals. Why should it be different if they're over 18? If for the time being we aren't able to rehabilitate them, let's say they're beyond rehabilitation, yes, you sentence them for life to either a psychiatric prison facility or other uh, 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 life, uh, life in detention type of situation. But how do we know that in 15 years we might not have new methods to treat these individuals such that they could be in society without posing a danger to others? We don't know that. And the definitiveness, the finality of the death penalty is a problem. It is. Uh, and not to mention the costs. I think. Uh you're right. There are going to be some cases in which these people cannot be rehabilitated and will always be violent and dangerous. But um, like you said, who knows what's possible in the future? We should just lock them away, uh, maybe, maybe until they die, maybe until we find a cure. And remember, this is not a new thing. This country has been punishing and jailing the mentally ill for hundreds of years. This is, this is just not uh, in any way new. It's just taken on a slightly different form. And imagine for a second... If we have one circle, which is the one in 25 on death row who are innocent, and another circle, which is those on death row who are mentally ill, if we imagine a sort of Venn diagram where these two circles intersect, I think, statistically speaking, there are innocent people who are mentally ill on death row. This is Truth Dig Radio. We're speaking with Bill Blum. He's a Truth Dig contributor, also a, a judge, a lawyer, a novelist, a man of many talents. We're talking about 9-11 and the president's speech. And also, I want to talk about your latest column, Bill. It reminds me uh, of 9-11. You talk about the beheadings that have gone on and um, carried out by ISIS of the journalists Stephen Sotloff and James Foley. And um, uh, it, 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 beheadings is such a gruesome thing. It always reminds me of, um, I always think first of Daniel Pearl, who of, of course died that way and also videotaped and released to the world uh, just months after 9-11 in Pakistan. Uh, also a journalist and but but you wrote this really interesting column um comparing you know evoking the the beheadings that happened simultaneously in Saudi Arabia that got no press attention um None whatsoever and and you use it as a, a way of talking about our own system of capital punishment um why don't you share with our listeners what what your thoughts were about it well uh, the occasion for the column was a class I was asked to guest lecture in by the editor-in-chief of Truth Dig, Robert Shear. And uh, shortly before that class, which is a class on ethics and communication, uh, he just mentioned to me in passing that he thought today's topic or this evening's topic <laughs> might be beheading. And uh, I 
really didn't know quite what to say. And when he opened the class with that subject, I don't think the students did either. But uh, as I wrote in the piece, gradually we, we all sort of caught our breath and tried to focus on what we all thought about. The beheading. And, and I should say for our listeners who aren't familiar with you, what makes this so interesting with you as a guest is that you are an expert in the death penalty and in capital punishment. I've represented six men who have been charged with capital crimes, one at the trial level and five on uh, appeals and writs. So, yes, I spent a lot of time both as a lawyer and also as a journalist writing about the subject. And uh, the students, uh, to my surprise and relief, frankly, had, had given some serious thought to what's happening with, 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 with ISIL and how it might compare to what we do domestically in the criminal justice system, executing some people and housing uh, a far greater number on death row. And... Um, the discussion we had was quite remarkable, I think. And just to be clear, um, for people who haven't read your column, which of course they can do on truthdig.com, you know, you don't, you're not suggesting that uh, the Islamic State uh, beheadings are in the same ballpark as uh, lethal injection in Texas, right? No, I'm not. I'm not. But, but what I think is really important to understand is that we as a nation responded to these beheadings with a narrative that not only condemned them, and I condemn them too, they're gruesome and unacceptable, but we put out this notion that we and our allies are better, morally superior, than this group, which is basically an organization of serial killers. And... At the same time, one of our allies, Saudi Arabia, consistently ranks number two in the number of executions annually, as reported by Amnesty International. And their method of execution, their primary method, is beheading. Lo and behold, we don't hear a word about that. Thirty people over the past month, according to my research, have been beheaded by the oil-rich kingdom of Saudi Arabia, our ally in the Middle East. And even as I speak, Secretary of State John Kerry is trying to enlist the support of the Saudis for the effort against ISIL. And I think that's pretty hypocritical and pretty much of an eye-opener. So at in the class, we wanted to uh, explore all this when the state or those in power execute people when they take the lives of anyone who has been uh, captured and rendered no longer a potential immediate threat to anybody else, is it ever ethical to take that person's life? And if so, is there any ethical way to go about an execution? And we did talk about lethal injection, and we noted that Cases out of Oklahoma and Arizona recently were rather gruesome and botched lethal injection procedures in which the condemned person more than likely suffered a great deal. And once again, showing that there is no really humane way for the state to execute anyone. 
Lawyers who represent people who have been sentenced to death often have to defend people who've committed heinous acts. What is the way that you go about persuading someone who um, is if, is for the death penalty that it, it is a mistake? Well, there are lots of ways that you that, that, that you go about that. And I think this is another subject we talked about in the class. But the, the, the way that I think all of these death penalty regimes operate in the most fundamental level is that they are able to separate the condemned person from the rest of the community. The condemned person is an other who is no longer worthy of any sympathy, empathy, or anything along those lines. So we can dehumanize them. So the first thing you want to do is try to penetrate that dialogue. Then there are more concrete steps that we've always taken, and that is we look at the general purposes behind capital punishment, deterrence, retribution. Um, Do those things really work? And then we examine the purposes behind the modern American system of capital punishment, which is this system of guided discretion that's supposedly designed to separate the class of people who unfortunately commit homicide but who aren't going to be executed from those who are most deserving of the ultimate punishment. And as we've seen time and time again, there really isn't any way to eliminate arbitrariness from uh, uh, the implementation of the death penalty, that consistently it's a penalty that is reserved for poor people and disproportionately for minorities. And in California, to draw the subject closer to home, a federal judge earlier this year has issued an order that applies statewide, which essentially puts a moratorium on capital punishment in California because the penalty simply is not implemented in a rational way. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, what you can do to fix the system. 
the recent botched execution of Oklahoma death row inmate Clayton Lockett reignited the death penalty debate in the media. Because the European countries where we previously obtained drugs for lethal injection refuse to be party to cruel and unusual punishment, states and executioners have been winging it with unproven cocktails. The governor of Oklahoma, Mary Fallon, has done nothing to calm the concern around improvising the procedure with her subsequent cold, unapologetic reaction. As Stephanie Minsimer plainly put it in her piece for Mother Jones, quote, when Oklahoma effectively tortured Lockett to death last Tuesday, Fallon changed the debate over the death penalty in a way that previous botched executions, evidence of racial disparities, innocence claims, bad lawyering, or even proof of the pointlessness of executing the intellectually disabled has been unable to do. Fallon, a Republican no less, has in one day managed to illustrate starkly why no other Western nation features state killing as a criminal punishment, unquote. The statement issued by the governor's office simply said, quote, Lockett had his day in court. The state lawfully carried out a sentence of death. Justice was served, unquote. Whether Lockett was guilty or not, this publicly horrific display of the death penalty's cruelty has sparked renewed interest in ensuring that those sentenced to endure it are not tragically innocent, making this the perfect time to get involved with the Innocence Project. You don't have to be a lawyer or a politician to advocate for the wrongly accused and convicted and help change the narrative in our country, where cultural amnesia allows names like Troy Davis to vanish into the ether with inexcusable speed. Check out the What Can I Do tab at innocenceproject.org for their top 10 ways to join the movement. Opportunities range from hosting a local educational event to helping improve local policy around wrongful convictions to connecting with one of the three dozen organizations around the country in the Innocence Network. Everyone can help by simply following at Innocence on Twitter and liking the Innocence Project on Facebook and spreading the stories as they develop. Personal narratives are what change our culture. Become part of the solution by amplifying the voices of the exonerated and the wrongfully convicted. Dispelling myths and putting human faces on those locked away out of sight is a crucial component to bringing justice to our justice system. The state of Louisiana has exonerated a man who has been incarcerated for nearly three decades for a murder that he did not commit in the 1980s. This is 64-year-old Glenn Ford. He'll never get those years back, but of course he's happy to be exonerated. He maintained his innocence uh, since the beginning of his conviction. However, no one believed him. He tried to appeal the case several times. No one was even considering uh, taking up his appeal. But now there's evidence to prove his innocence, and thankfully he will be set free. Uh, now, there were a number of things that, or a number of inconsistencies that led to his exoneration. Last Thursday, prosecutors filed a motion to vacate Ford's con uh, conviction and sentence, saying that in late 2013, credible evidence came to their attention, supporting a finding that Ford was neither present at nor a participant in the robbery and murder of a jeweler by the name of Isidore Roseman. 
they had picked him because he did yard work occasionally for Roseman. And so there's two angles to the story. One is racial and one is generally about the death penalty. Now, his jury was all white, and, um, and the prosecutors had information that could have actually uh, helped his cause. They hid it, okay? And it turns out the two guys who did it, including now we have an informant uh, who uh, said he talked to the guy who confessed to it, which yes. Anna will explain in a second, okay? Two guys who did it were actually white. Okay, and they at the time, not now, just now, at the time they had credible evidence that it was those guys. Instead, they're like, okay, who's the closest black guy we could find to this guy? The guy who does yard yeah, work. Yeah, he does his yard work every once in a while. Let's pick that guy. He wasn't at the scene. There was no nothing connecting him. They're like, ah, good enough. We can connect him in some way. He did yard work for him. It must have been him. Such a miscarriage of justice, and it makes you so depressed to know that this man's life was completely ruined. I mean. I, I, I'm sure a lot of times you hear these stories about people that have been exonerated after serving decades behind bars and they're just so happy to be out that they, they don't want to look back and they somehow convince themselves to live a happy life. But I mean, his life was ruined. You took 30 years of this man's life away from him simply because of his skin color, because the prosecutors obviously had a bias here. And that's another thing that I don't understand, right? The real person who actually committed this murder, who actually shot this jeweler, is out there and he's free. But instead of focusing on that, you're allowing your own biases to go after a completely innocent man. You're ignoring evidence. There was a confession. Okay, the person who confessed to it uh, was a man by the name of Jake Robinson. He confessed to it and prosecutors were like, nah, whatever. Yeah. Now look, they've been trying to get this information out for decades. Finally, you got an evidentiary hearing in 2000. He's released all the way in 2013, mm -hmm. right? And at that point, they had evidence that if, uh, that, su that the prosecutors suppressed information about Jake and Henry Robinson, these two uh, white brothers who were initially implicated in the crime. Mm -hmm. Now, finally, the prosecutor says, well, if we had all the information and it was presented to the jury, they might not have even arrested or indicted him, let alone convicted him, let alone put him on death row, okay? but. One of the reasons the prosecutors do it is not just because they're viciously racist at the time, right? Uh, but because it's easier. They just, like, it's oh, an open I'm, and well, shut case for them. I'll have an all-white jury. It'll be su super easy to convict this white guy. I'm sorry, this black guy. If I put a white guy on the stand, well, it's going to be harder. Some people are going to relate to him, yada, yada. And you know, let's just wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares who's right? Who cares that that guy was murdered? We do the death penalty because what? We want justice? No, we want some sort of bloody vengeance, right? And it doesn't have to be on the right person, as long as the masses are appeased. Now, so let's get to the death penalty. Now, I was an advocate of the death penalty, and I believe in deterrence, and sometimes I even believe in vengeance, okay? So maybe I'm not a good guy, and I'm certainly not a liberal on that issue, okay? But I changed my mind, why? Because we're applying it wrong, because we keep letting go people who are on death row, when it turns out, they didn't do it. Now it's happened dozens of times. Now it happens again. What kind of a person, faced with that evidence, says, I'm still in favor of the death penalty, even though we consistently have the wrong guys on death row? What kind of an animal would still be in favor of the death penalty? Even if you're like me, and you say, hey, you know what, I don't mind the vengeance, okay? Look, if it happened to my family member, I want justice, right? But I'd want justice on the right guy. I wouldn't want to kill someone else who didn't do it. You'd have to be an animal. You'd have to be the same kind of murderer that you want executed to be okay with killing the wrong guy. 
as it is applied today in America, if you're a halfway, a quarter of a way decent human being, you cannot be in favor of the death penalty. It's an open and shut case. If you are, you really got to check what kind of person you are, man. You got to look inside yourself and see if you have any shred of morality or decency. How can you be comfortable with executing the wrong people? Hi, Jay. How are you? This is Jeff calling from Cleveland. I'm trying this again. Listen, I've called you in the past, and I was calling you especially in response to Professor Rambo, okay? And I don't know whether or not he's a professor or not. However, he does represent a thought. And everybody has their own thoughts and opinions, and they have their own rights to their own thoughts, opinions, and feelings. However, I disagree. Let me preface something. I am a black African-American male who does agree with many of his topics, especially um, respectability politics. I do agree with respectability uh, politics. However, I do not agree with his address on Ray Rice and what he was talking about regarding feminism and, and his victim blaming. First of all, I believe that he was confused by the word feminism. Many times when people hear the word feminism, they're automatically turned off because it does represent a myriad of topics. Number one, black feminism versus other feminism is totally different. Many times, many black feminists do not represent the same as the majority race our feminism is concerned. I also believe that, and I'm talking directly to you, Rambo, right now, that I believe you have problems with the past and some of your issues that have not been addressed when you were mentioning the part about Janae, who specifically uh, you said was after Ray Rice for his money. And that's the only reason why she was staying in that situation. That is regardless of the fact. The fact is, is that she is still a victim and nobody believes, nobody, nobody deserves to be hit in the face at such a force of what you saw on that tape. Knocked out and dragged through an elevator. She could have been killed. Alright? So it has nothing to do with the fact that what the point that you mentioned. Also, sometimes you need to be careful not to put your own personal experiences in there. Is there a chance that there might have been a girl in your past that may have left you because you might not have at that time had enough money? Come on now. I mean, you're grown. You're an adult. As you address your professor, Randall, you must be pretty far advanced right now in your career. Thank you, Jack. That's it. That's my point. Hey, Jay, it's Wade. I'm calling about uh, Al's question at the end of the last show. Hi, this is Al from Seattle. How do we as a community, as a society, help lift up our brothers and sisters to say, no, uh, you do not have to take violence and you can grow and be okay without this person 
who is not caring for you in the way that they need to. And I thought long and hard about, you know, how to, I, I felt like I wanted to say something. I thought long and hard about, you know, what I, what I wanted to say. And the question basically was, you know, how do you get people to turn away from the poison that's in their lives? You know, to, to, to flourish without whatever is holding them back. In this case, an abusive partner. But it can be anything. See, I lost my uh, my father on uh, Christmas Day. I found his body. And uh, it was a series of bad decisions that led him to that point. A bad partner. Uh, lots of abuse. Um to himself and uh, you know self-inflicted a lot of things and uh through a series of horrible decisions i lost my brother to prison serving a 15-year sentence and at any point and could have made simple decisions that it, that would have changed the course and looking back those decisions are easy to somebody like me looking from the outside but to that person that's in the maze of whatever you know, tangled web their mind is, they don't see it as an easy decision. And the, the best you can do for somebody, and I've been here twice now, the best you can do for somebody that, at least in my opinion, is provide that safe place, you know, physically if, if needed, but mainly emotionally. Because if you need that, that safe place because they're the only one that can pull themselves out of it. They're the only one fighting through it. And if they can have that place to talk it, you know, talk themselves around and make that, that effort, they can be, you know, saved essentially. But how do you get somebody to leave an abusive partner? Uh, what words can you really say to them? If we knew the answer to that, there'd be a lot less violence in this world. There'd be a lot less pain and suffering and grief. If we knew what made, you know, people ha make horrible decisions or, Stay with people that hurt them or, or keep drinking that alcohol that's killing them or smoking that crystal meth that's, you know, destroying their their soul. God, you know, we <laughs> that would be a wonderful thing. It'd be as close as we'll ever get to utopia. But unfortunately, we don't know how to do that. I read some stat a long time ago, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, but it sounds... I think it was pretty accurate. Something about psychologists to commit suicide at a very high rate. And I think the reason why they do that, if that's true, is because that survivor's guilt can eat you alive. The fact that you couldn't save everybody. The fact that it was so simple. If they just would have seen this or that or the other, and they would have grabbed your hand, you could have, you could have pulled them out of the muck. And those are experts. You know, it's pretty tough for us, us laymen to, to do that. And so you want to, when you're trying to save somebody, you have to watch out for yourself at the same time because that grief is powerful. As, as I'm sure, Al, you know what you're going through right now. My heart goes out to you. It truly does. And, you know, I, I hope this, uh, I thought about this for a long, hard time. It's, you know, it's, your message really touched me. And, and, I, and I hope this just doesn't sound callous. And, Jay, I'm counting on you to be my moral compass here. I don't think... I, I don't mean it to be callous if it is, but if it is, then for God's sakes, don't play it because I don't want her, you know, to, I certainly didn't want that to come across in a bad way. It's just a very touchy subject uh, for, for a lot of people, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, Al, I wish you the best. And um, like I said, watch out for yourself while you're providing that safe place. Pretty tricky place to be.
Alright, that's all I have. Thank you. Hi, Jay. This is Elka in Fort Wayne, and um, I'm calling in response to your uh, call out for quote unquote experts in the field of uh, domestic violence. I don't know if, I mean, you and I have corresponded a lot, both um, on air, you know, just in other words, me leaving voicemails, but then also off air. Um, you know, through voicemails and, or excuse me, through uh, emails over the years. And, um, but I don't know if you know exactly what I do. I know you know that I'm an educator and, you know, that I teach at the college level. And, but I am also a program coordinator uh, with a domestic violence agency that has been in existence for 35 years. Uh, <laughs> and um, we do very good work there. And, um, you know, I've, I've seen all sides of this issue, and I've worked with folks on every possible side of this issue. I've worked with batterers. Um, I was one of the only women certified violence interventionists, here, you know, here in my area, in my region. I worked with men for a long time in my work at uh, the organization that I work with, and um, I work with women. I've worked with victims, so I, I have my, you know, hand in, in every pot, so to speak, in the work that we do with domestic violence. And um, anyway, what I would say to Professor Rambo and um, people like him who are trying to look to the victim for explanations of this kind of behavior, what I would say is this, you are barking up the wrong tree if you're looking to victims for answers. Not only are you re-victimizing victims when you look to victims for answers, but um, you're placing the onus in the wrong place. The onus for, onus for violence must always be placed firmly at the feet of the abuser, firmly at the feet of the perpetrator. What the victim says and does is of no consequence when we are talking about holding batterers, um, people who use violence, women who use violence, men who use violence. When we're talking about holding those people accountable for their violence and their actions, what the victim is saying or doing is not what should be the focus. The victims are going to behave like victims, okay? And so someone like Professor Rambo doesn't necessarily need to know what that means because it's incredibly nuanced. And there's a lot of baggage that goes with that when I say victims are going to behave like victims. In a nutshell, victims are going to do and say things that may not make sense to anybody who is not or has never been a victim. But, again, you know, if Professor Rambo doesn't know what to say to a victim or doesn't know what to think or how to feel about a victim, that's okay because his focus needs to be on the person who is using violence. His focus should be on the abuser. His focus should be on Ray Rice. His focus should be on holding Ray Rice and any other man or woman who would use violence against their partner or anyone else, holding that person accountable. The wrong question to be asking is why do victims stay? The right question to be asking is why do abusers abuse? That's the question that needs to be asked. And I would suggest that Professor Rambo look at this from that perspective. I don't know if that helped at all. <laughs> I'm just, I'm really, uh, I didn't really get my thoughts together around this because I was so upset by that, the way that whole thing went down. 
Um, but I do appreciate the way that you approached it with him. And, you know, and if, if folks have any other questions or you have any other questions, I'm more than happy to um, try to answer or respond. Okay? Thanks, Jay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I have to say, I really enjoy the days when the voicemails are so good that they require no response whatsoever. And the conversation goes on as if I'm not here. So I'll just say again you know if you if you would like to join the conversation i highly recommend i've been getting a lot of great uh, voicemails recently so please keep those coming in the number again 202-999-3991 that is going to be it for today thanks to everyone for listening thanks to those who support the show especially by becoming a member or making one-time donations that is absolutely how the program survives of course everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it leaving glowing reviews on itunes and stitcher and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past